Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Last month, we were joined by MedAct, Praxis and the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants in a conversation about the UK's hostile environment, the sprawling web of immigration controls embedded in the heart of our public services and communities. We were talking about how this hostile environment intersects with healthcare access, the Windrush scandal and Brexit, amongst other things. If you haven't listened to that one yet, then do check it out. You can find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean and pretty much every other podcast hosting platform. And if you're one of our truly dedicated listeners, you might cast your mind back to last May when we also spoke to Liberty and Right to Remain about immigration detention here in the UK as well. Today, we'll be looking at one more piece in the odious puzzle that is the hostile environment, namely the government's shady, barely legal practice of deportation charter flights. And we're also going to be talking about resistance. In March 2017, a group of activists surrounded a plane at Stansted Airport in a peaceful protest to stop what they believed was the unlawful deportation of 60 people on a charter flight to Ghana and Nigeria. The group was initially charged with aggravated trespass, but this was later changed to endangering safety at aerodromes, a much more serious offence under the umbrella of anti-terror legislation that carries a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. The Stansted 15, as the group has come to be known, was found guilty after a protracted and high-profile court case. In February this year, sentences were handed down, thankfully all non-custodial, and an appeal process is now underway. The prosecution of the Stansted 15 feels emblematic of our dark political times, and yet at the same time it's a story that shows the importance and efficacy of solidarity through direct action. I'm Chris Brown, and I'm very happy to be joined today by two of the Stansted 15. Lindsay Burtonshaw, a participatory facilitator working with collectives Navigate, Resist and Renew and Beautiful Trouble, focusing on spiritual activism and white allyship for racial justice. And Laura Clayson, a divest invest consultant at the National Union of Students, a children's author and a circus enthusiast. Both Lindsay and Laura are also part of End Deportations. So Lindsay, Laura, thank you both very much for taking the time out of your weekend to come on the show. Just before we get stuck in, I will also quickly mention, as with our previous episode, we've once again put together a selection of books that relate to our discussion today for anyone that wants a bit of wider reading. All of these books are 50% off on plutobooks.com for the next month, exclusively for our podcast listeners. You just have to enter the code podcast at the checkout to get that discount. And you can check out all the books on offer by going to www.plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. That's one word. So perhaps we should talk a little bit first about the government's chartered deportation flights. What are they, for anyone that doesn't know? Who is typically on them? uh, And why are they so problematic? So deportation charter flights are flights that are chartered by the Home Office to deport people. They are a cowardly, brutal and barely legal way of violently forcing people out of the UK. They rip people from our communities, from our families, from our friendship circles and send them away to very unknown circumstances a lot of the time. The experiences of people on these flights and in detention are well documented and it is an incredibly distressing time for people. And they're problematic for a number of reasons. For example, the fact that people who are given a ticket for the flight are often told 
kind of a removal window in which they'll be removed but won't actually be given the date or the time of the flight which makes it very hard to get effective like legal support and before our action there used to be kind of a policy in place well I don't know if it was like a formalized policy but the people representing those that had been given a ticket would be told like when that flight was to go the individual wouldn't but the representative would but that's a practice that has now ended and you know the use of these charter flights means that people don't get the access to justice that they have the right to 68% of asylum claims are like refused the first time that they are lodged but then upon appeal like 42% of those are overturned and then they're accepted And like very often people that are given a charter flight ticket, they don't have that time to be able to like launch their appeal. And the Supreme Court decided in the aftermath of our action in 2017 that like kind of the deport first appeal later from like the country that people have been sent to, that that shouldn't be something that continues to exist. So Laura's been talking about deport first appeal later which was as she said still in operation when we were on trial and we've been organizing with people with our friends like Adaronke Apata as as one as people who've been given a ticket to be deported and have then because they've made subsequent arrangements and finally like for Adaronke after 13 years she managed to get her asylum claim through but we're seeing this as like this is the structural violence that the the state is handing out to black and brown people who've been here often for decades upon decades like recently we've been really celebrating the fact that deportation flights are being looked at and considered more in the media um since our action I like to think that we're part of that that struggle but people like Uh, There was a man called Owen Hazley who'd been in Manchester since he was a child and he'd been given a deportation ticket. And another man who, he was a footballer in Bristol, incredibly like well involved in his community and such a strong part of that community in Bristol as a, and he was part of the gay football team and he was being deported despite the fact that his sexuality made him so much more of a vulnerable deportee. So we're seeing this as like structural violence, not only against black and brown people, but also specifically queer people, which is also like where where me and Laura have come into this solidarity work from that angle. Because my background is that I grew up in this tiny town in Yorkshire where, you know, I didn't really meet anyone who wasn't white and then slowly became aware that this is happening every day sort of under people's unassuming noses like every time going through Gatwick airport there's actually a detention center there and people are just taken arbitrarily and and yeah this is specifically happening specifically dangerously to LGBTQ people in this country. On that specific aspect as well as Lindsay said like identifying as queer was like a big part of both of our motivations for taking this action, like, you know, wanting to act in solidarity uh, with the queer community. And it is like really scary to know that in 2010, there was like research done that showed that like 98 to 99% of lesbian and gay asylum claims were refused 
just the knowledge that that is a thing and the fear that people must experience and do experience as a result of that, you know, really like moved us to like want to take action as people that do have white privilege and like the ability to act. We felt that we should. I'm just going to not acknowledge that me and Laura have spoken about this in court and I'm finding that as I'm like speaking about these things, my body is remembering that we were on trial, threatened with life imprisonment for these opinions and for and saying these kind of things to try and highlight them. And yeah, the gratitude for being able to speak to Pluto Press instead, but also that the like Amnesty International supported us because we're seeing that our criminalization was part of like this wave of serious criminalization of people acting in solidarity with asylum seekers and refugees across Europe and that our case is not alone in that but I also think that there's a massive cause for hope in terms of the space for protest and the space for direct action in this way in the UK because yes we were criminalized with this really obscure law that was very very threatening for all the time that we were on trial but we were given a sentence that was for our original charge and actually I think there's more space than it seemed before more space for this kind of protest and more space for this kind of direct action to to carry on happening yeah and I, and I think one of the things that is really important as part of this conversation as well is in the action we take like we should always be taking a lead from those that have got lived experience of this system like of the brutal border regime and I was at a panel recently and there was a hunger striker from Yarlswood speaking on it and she was just talking about like the power of coming together as a collective with like other women that were held inside around like very common issues despite being from like such a diverse range of backgrounds and just deciding that they were going to do something about it. The things that she spoke about, about the conditions inside Yardwood were like so difficult to listen to, but so important to hear about and to hear from her perspective, like how, you know, supposedly there's this policy where like vulnerable migrants can't be held inside. But she was like, you know, there was there was a disabled woman in Yardwood who didn't have the support to go about her daily life as she should have been able to. Couldn't go to the toilet unaided. Yeah. Yeah. And like the fact that people get paid like one pound an hour to do work inside detention. Like, how is that justifiable? Yeah. I think the other thing that was really important and the reason that I mentioned this in particular was about, yeah, taking a lead from those with lived experience of detention and like borders just generally, but also like making sure that we're really taking what people are saying like properly you know because I think there's this real danger at the moment about like detention being brought down to like 28 days and that's just not what people inside want they don't want detention at all like no one should be detained and also it's amazing that Yarlswood gets loads of attention but we've we've actually heard that Yarlswood is going to be shutting down and Campsfield is being shut down and detention centres are easier to organise around because they're physical spaces. You can go there, you can do do protests, you can access people there that, that in, a, in a way it's easier to, to get to people. Whereas what we're hearing now from, I was on a panel with women for, who are part of the Black Women Against Rape Action Group and Crossroads Women's Centre. And they were saying that a really insidious 
new focus of the hostile environment is this idea of voluntary returns and how these are people who are experiencing structural violence. In real life, that means that people are extremely vulnerable, severe mental health issues. Like of course, of course, that's like a rational response to being treated in these, these horrific ways, being threatened with being separated from the entire life you know and all your stability. And there's, there's reasons why people seek asylum because they've been through horrific war-torn like conflict and rape and it's just yeah it's not an experience that everyone has gone through and then they get to the stage where they're seeking asylum and now we're seeing with voluntary returns people are being tricked in interviews with people who are made to look like they're trying to help them so they'll be with some like ostensibly like helpful sounding organization or job title and they'll you know they'll look like a helpful person and then they'll try and like get them to say something and record something that makes it sound like they want to return and then they'll just give them a ticket and they're gone and this is also like one of the concerning things in terms of yeah it's great that detention centers are shutting down those places are worse than prisons they are unimaginable places like one of the reasons why I took this action was because one of my best friends used to volunteer with Gatwick detainee support and she used to visit a man who hadn't been given asylum, but he, every single finger on his hands was mangled from torture and you could see that, like it didn't take a genius to work that out. His fingers were mutilated and yet he hadn't been given his asylum. That is what detention centres are like. So yeah, we need them shut down 100%. But now the government's finding this new way to get rid of people who need asylum in this country. Yeah, and there was someone that I was listening to also on the same panel as the Oswood hunger striker from the All African Women's Group. And she was also talking about how damaging like the voluntary returns policy is and like charity and NGO and organisational involvement in that and how Mm -hmm. terrifying it is that there are people that are working with the Home Office in this way. And um, one of the things that she said was like something from her own life and the fact that she was laying in bed in hospital in agony and someone came to her and was like, you know, will you voluntarily return? And it's like, this is just so exploitative. And using mind games like you're costing the NHS so much and like using those awful discourses of like you don't deserve this kind of help and it's it's racist and it's classist and it's just not the way we should treat people who are that vulnerable and this this is like a normal practice the fact that this is so normalized so one of the other things we found out during the course of the trial was like there's been reports that the home office is racist culture is so entrenched that if people accept people's asylum claims and and they get sent through there's been accounts of monkeys being left on that person's desk. Like if that's what the work culture's like, no wonder they're perpetuating this violence out there in the UK. You've both sort of touched on what compelled you to get involved in this sort of activism, I guess. But can you tell us a little bit about the action itself? What kind of led up to it? Um, how did it come about? And then what was it like on the day itself? So I was really good friends with Ali from just same circles, friendships. We were hanging out on his boat once and like I'd talked to him about, I'd started at that point doing 
white allyship for racial justice workshops with the Collective Liberation Project. And I've been thinking a lot about my own whiteness and like I'm achingly British. And I've been thinking a lot about what that means in terms of how is my skin colour and my experience implicated with the history of British colonialism. Like there's no really like fluffy way to say it. You know, I've had struggles in my life, like like anyone really, but there's also reasons why I've had a much more easier time than people who are black and brown. And yeah, I just was thinking a lot about that, reading about it and really like deeply questioning, like I have one life like put on this earth, like, you know, how can I, you know, be useful to other people who've got a much thinner end of the wedge than I have? And I'm also like an activism nerd. Like I, I got into protests at uni and started just really being into these spaces where change feels possible and like something that we can build together. So I was really interested in collective action and chatting about this with Ali because he's my pal. And then he asked me to get involved with this. And now I say that, oh, I've I've been a Quaker for like much longer than I thought I had. Um, it's, it's only become like a recent identity, if you like, but it's it's very much in that vein of like seeing the human in people who aren't necessarily from like my background and like seeing seeing us all part of the same humanity. So this very pragmatic, like stopping a deportation flight that's deporting people in a violent way to violent, a violent circumstance kind of like, yeah, I can see I can see the merit in that. How about you, Laura? As one of my wonderful co-defendants, Ali, highlighted when speaking at an event recently, it's interesting because each person that was involved with this action has like such a different story to tell about how they came to be there on that night in March 2017. As mine and Lindsay's stories are like very similar, I'm going to answer you with the collective story. So like the story that brought us all together. So in the lead up to the action, the group of 15 of us became aware of three people due to be on the flight. We came to know of these people because a collective called Detain Voices was in touch with them. Collectively, it was very much their stories that really moved us to take action in the lead up to it. One person was a Nigerian woman who had been forced into an arranged marriage and had come to the UK in the hope that she could live freely as a lesbian which it's not possible or safe to do in Nigeria. Her four children were being cared for by a friend in Nigeria and she was sending them money for support so that they could attend school. In her testimony, she spoke about how her ex-husband had told her that he was going to kill her upon her arrival. Um, Another person that was due to be on the flight was a 21-year-old asylum seeker whose brother and grandfather were killed in Nigeria. His parents were in Britain and he was going to be deported back to a place where he didn't have anybody. And he feared being sent to Nigeria because there was fighting over the land. And he spoke about his fear around how he knew that people had died who had been deported. And there was like such fear and desperation in his words. And there was also a person being deported to Ghana who had lived in the UK for 18 years and their wife, brother and brother's children were all in the UK. And he said that he would kill himself if he was sent away. And when he was first given a ticket for a flight, it was on the same night that he reported to an immigration centre 
and was like detained there and then. One of the officers that he met offered him 20 pounds to return to Ghana with. And he was like, how could I return to a place that I haven't been to for 15 years with just 20 pounds? So I would say that this is the collective story of how the action came about. We became aware of these stories and aware that things like approaching MPs were not leading to these people getting off the flight. And we had like very serious concerns for them and their safety if they were to be sent away on that deportation flight. Mm. Me and Laura love each other very much. And part of that affinity is from like a similar similar backgrounds and the fact that we're both like oddballs in our family that are really into activism and like general nerdy reading books and stuff yes which we kind of stick out but also we've got a strong background both of us in union organizing and both being like elected union officers in our universities and when I was at university that's when I first met someone who was being threatened with deportation because it was this man who He was a student, you know, just like anyone else, middle of his studies. And he came to me and he said, help me because I've got hepatitis B, but they want to send me back to Nigeria. And that's where my brother died of hepatitis B because you can't get medication there for it. And I just, I, I I felt so helpless. I was just like, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know how to help you. I have no idea how to do something about the machine that is the home office and that like feeling of helplessness really stuck with me because it was my job to help him as my he was one of my students and it just that felt wrong and then later this was when like you know the photo of the little boy washed up on the beach went viral and people started being actually outraged about that happening and it's like against charity law for me then working for a charity to take a bunch of students to Calais to volunteer but that's what these students wanted so in my spare time I took like a a group of 15 of us over to Calais and we volunteered in the warehouse and we like helped out in the jungle as much as we could but it was half term and we had limited time and resources and again it felt like this is a sticking plaster on the situation something more needs to be done and that was part of like me thinking about what more can be done about this? People in Calais were people who'd travelled all that way and then imagining, like, people with gunshot wounds in their feet and people who've left behind their entire families and then they finally get to Britain and then they get deported straight away. Like, that's just, it's just not right. Hmm. You, you talked about this being, like, a very pragmatic way of intervening into something that's wrong and clearly it was successful as an action and hopefully we can talk a bit more about that in a bit but a lot of our listeners are actually not based in the UK so they may not have heard as much about the Stansted 15 and the the actual day of action itself as perhaps some people in this country so it's been alluded to quite a lot already but what did you actually do uh, on the day itself? Well it was the night so it was under the cover of night under the cover of darkness (laughs) which got said very theatrically in court um, which is why we're smiling saying that there's 15 of us we got in a minibus we'd been practicing all day so we made sure we were really like really tight really together we had one shot at doing this and it needed to be right we had one goal and that was to stop that plane from setting off so it needed to be done properly and 
Laura mentioned detained voices. So we'd already been visited the week before by someone who gathers testimonies from people who are inside detention centres. And the point of detained voices is to record the verbatim words of people experiencing this because these are people whose stories get misrepresented so much. So detained voices had come to visit us and shared two stories of people who were going to be on the flight that we wanted to stop. And in the minibus, we read them out to each other and remembered who this action was for and imagining those people being loaded onto coaches and like, you know, maybe they didn't have any bags with them because they hadn't had a chance to pack and imagining who they were thinking of, who they were being taken away from and really remembering the purpose of it. Once the minibus had reached Stansted, we were like stopped outside this perimeter fence that like surrounds all of the airport just to be like really like clear because this was a huge part of our trial the part of Stansted airport where deportation charter flights take off from it's not near like the terminals where like everyday folk who are like going on holiday go from it's like really like far away near Harrods building and so all got off the minibus in like a very organized format uh some people cut a smallish hole in the fence so that we could all fit through. With the lock-ons. With the lock-ons and, and with tripod. our trolleys and that the lock-ons were on and our tripods and everything. They cut through and then we like bobbed along in our pink hats across like the patch of grass that separated us from the flight that we were going towards. And just to clarify, we knew it was going to be there because we'd done lots of recce's. So there'd been people filming and taking notes about the exact times when these flights happened and looking at how they happened. So like when the cabin crew got on and when the coaches arrived and like the timings and all of that and also matching them up to the online databases of like flight records. I think it's called Flight Radar, the website. And so we did all that recce's to make sure our information was correct. So when we went airside at the airport we knew exactly what time and who was going to be on that plane because we already knew that information so as we were walking across the grass we had enough time to be quite calm about it we were walking we were carrying our trolleys the trolleys had lock-ons attached to them with bungee cords they were secure and we were in pairs which we'd rehearsed before and we were heading for two respective locations underneath the plane. There was a, a tripod crew and there was also a wheel crew. So me and Laura were on wheel crew and there was four of us in total. Our job was to get to the wheel, lock on around it. And the people on the tripod had a bit of a trickier job of erecting two tripods, one with a clear big pink banner saying no one is legal, kind of stating our clear purposes. And, and then setting up lights around it and then locking on around it. We decided to do this in the two teams to maximise the chance of locking on around the plane, but also to cover the fact that we needed to make it really clear who we were, what our mission was and like, you know, be really visible. Yeah, we were wearing pink and high vis, but we wanted to be really clear what our purpose was there as well. Yeah, and so once we were locked into position... Me and Linz were actually locked to each other around the front wheel of the plane. We just laid there and waited 
until people came over to us to like ask us to leave and yeah we were just like quite clear in the fact that we weren't going to do that we weren't going to be going anywhere till we were sure that the flight wasn't leaving and we sang songs about solidarity and also some Beyonce songs (laughs) I remember quite clearly probably not one to really go into too much here um and yeah we were there the last one of us was arrested 10 hours after the action started so like it it was like successful and the plane didn't take off and the people that were due to be on the flight were still in the country in terms of practical tips to share we were we were also prepared in terms of We'd eaten and drank water and we were wearing nappies, which is like pretty vital if you're going to do a direct action like this. Also, I was one of the mugs who forgot to bring my extra padding. It was really nippy night. It was like late March, but it was cold and it was raining. And so we were wearing many, many layers. Um, we all looked really super padded, but it's it's really good that some of us had roll mats and bits of cardboard to lay on because we were lying on the tarmac for like 10 hours in total and yeah Helen who was on top of the tripod she she was the last person to be to be removed from the site and she had she had lost all feelings in her legs and she couldn't walk because she'd been been up there so long and she was sat on top of a football to just help with the sort of perching atop a tripod Hmm. you were there for 10 hours and um I mean you mentioned earlier about the the statistics of people whose appeal claims are then sort of granted or successful, if you will. What was the outcome for the people on the flight in question? Yeah, so actually just last week we got confirmation that, um, so during the course of the trial, Mel, Strickland and Laura here went absolutely wild for the freedom of information requests that you can do to the government. And these are like tediously slow processes. They took months and months and months and months and months. Maybe Laura can... Mine has still actually not been replied to. <laughs> just... I was had to go to the information commissioner and Mel had a lot more success because she like ended up submitting questions one by one. But mm-hmm. I, I won't lie, I was feeling too stubborn about it by that point. So I was like, right, I'm just going to keep arguing going through the information commissioner. But yeah, they've never shared that. Yeah, so the ones that Mel Strickland was successful in getting answers to were about the people who were meant to be on that flight And we found out from those freedom of information requests that two of the women who were meant to be on our flight were being referred through the national referral mechanism for victims of trafficking. Like at the time we were like, they could be people trafficked for sex slavery or domestic slavery. Like Nigeria has really high rates of people trafficking. And we've since found out that one of the people who was of those two, a Nigerian woman who... The details are just, yeah, horrific. But she's she's been granted leave to remain, so she's she's got her asylum on humanitarian grounds. So, yeah, it's kind of a bittersweet success because on one hand, she's been given that status, which is going to mean she's going to be able to access services and help. But on the other hand, we know that um, she's having a really hard time because of the horrors she's had to endure and... We stopped one plane and she's one person. We don't know. You know, she could have been re-trafficked if she was sent back to Nigeria. The risk of that would be incredibly high. And the truth of it was we don't know how much this happens to people and what the real statistics are of people who get 
deported and trafficked back and deported and trafficked back and how many people die because they are deported back. So as we can celebrate that she's she's still here, but in terms of people who are trafficked, it's horrific, yeah. Yeah, so in terms of the flight that we grounded, 57 people were due to be deported on that night. There was actually a deportation flight two days after we did the action. And that was quite gutting to know about. Mm. Um, Yeah, I know that some people went along. Obviously, we couldn't because we were not allowed to return to Stansted Airport. We still aren't, actually. We were banned from Essex. Yeah, we were banned from the county of Essex when when we first got arrested, which was never something I thought would be a thing or could be a thing. But yeah, so... There were 57 people due to be deported. I can't remember the exact figure of people that ended up being deported two days later, but we do know from freedom information requests and like confirmation from the Home Office throughout the course of the trial that 11 people from the flight are still in the country as a result. It's coming up for nearly two years later. Mm -hmm. Three of those people have been given leave to remain. As Lindsay mentioned, two people have been referred to the National Referral Mechanism for Victims of Trafficking. Which, as an aside, is an incredibly bureaucratic. And I have friends who work directly with people who are in safe houses and who have been trafficked and lots of people don't fulfill the criteria. So it's like, it's not to say that even if someone doesn't fulfill criteria and isn't referred through the NRM, then they aren't trafficked. It's it's like another bureaucratic machine Mm -hmm. yeah also we know that of the 11 people that are in the country 10 have been advancing asylum claims so it kind of shows what we already know of like the use of deportation charter flights and that's that many many of the people that are put on them should never have been put on them in the first place or issued a ticket because they are advancing claims that mean that they should have the right to further access to justice, which charter flights totally disrupt their ability to get. The other thing that um, I just wanted to mention is one of the stories of one of the people that we know from the flight. And that's a guy who had been held in detention and was due to be deported. And he is one of the people that has been given leave to remain. And as a result of the action that we took, it meant that he got to be present for the birth of his child. So, you know, these really are just people living their lives in the UK with like roots and families and they're part of communities. And these are the people that are being deported on charter flights. And that's why they should be ended as a practice and just not used. What happened next after, you know, you'd been arrested and then you were charged? I think you were charged first with aggravated trespass. Is that right? alongside like violation of Stansted bylaws and criminal damage as right. well so there were like three things that we were facing but they were things that we could kind for, of be expected yeah we expected them so this was in at the end of March and then in August we got recharged with this incredibly obscure only been used once before piece of Aviation and Maritime Security Act legislation, which had been drafted after the Lockerbie bombing. So this was specifically designed to criminalise violent acts of terrorism. Um, It's a terror-related offence. It had been used once before when a man had used a helicopter to dive bomb a control tower. 
kind of different to what we did. It was designed to have a chilling effect on this kind of protest and this kind of direct action and this kind of solidarity action because what this did was it ramped it up to Crown Court and we knew then we would be facing a jury and we also knew that the maximum sentence from this charge was life imprisonment which you know hit us like like a wallop and everything became a lot more ramped up this was like amnesty international were already involved they got more involved and everyone who were being supported by um really started seeing this as like part of a european wide effect to try and clamp down on solidarity work with asylum seekers the trial was 10 weeks long in total. When we started off, we thought it would be like three or four. Um, it just kept stretching out and stretching out because, yeah, I could say a lot about how mind-bendingly slow and bureaucratic the criminal justice system in the UK is. Like, maybe your listeners already know, Chris, that like the criminal justice system isn't really centred around victims and survivors of violence like the people who are on the plane that we stopped but it, it's certainly not a people-centered process and yeah it ended up being 10 weeks and yeah members of our group have like lost jobs and suffered some some really hard personal times because of it um, but we've been consistently supported by the local community in Chelmsford which you know is a town in Essex and the like interfaith groups in Chelmsford, including the Bishop of the Cathedral, Stephen Cottrell, and the Quakers there have all just been phenomenal and continued to support. And coaches of people came from all over the place. And it was also a useful platform to give to, like we had spoken word artists and people who've experienced detention and threatened with deportation speaking about their experiences. Like we've been working with Freed Voices and... People have been, yeah, coming and meeting each other. So whilst Chelmsford's been a bit of a schlep for lots of people to come to to support us, it also means we've been part of strengthening this movement because now people know each other's names and faces and contact each other and the, the movement feels really like there's lots of groups but we're all working together. Just to pick up a little bit on what Lindsay just said about the justice system, which I would use like little kind of finger quotation marks around justice because it's not really about any of that. It's like, I feel like what I really theoretically knew about the justice system, which I'm just going to refer to as the legal system from here on in, is that like, it's about constructing a certain narrative. It's not actually about establishing fact or like really being aware or even really giving a shit about people's motivations or why they did stuff or the circumstances that led them to do what they did. It's very much about just like trying to get a conviction, like really creating a certain narrative around around people and why they've done stuff. And, you know, people that I've met through probation have has just served to really reinforce that. Like the reasons that they've ended up doing community service and the reasons that they ended up in court in the first place is a result of the inequities that are inherent within the societal system. Like they've like faced oppression, they've faced debt. There's like the racism of the court system has become really clear from the conversations I've been having, which again, I knew about theoretically, but through this process, it's been like a real, almost like awareness raising thing to be able to be like, well, now we know some of the personal stories of the people that get caught up in this. And actually it's not about justice at all. 
And if it was, then as Lindsay said, the court the court case would have been about justice for the people that shouldn't have been on that flight. And yet here we are with this endangerment charge doing community service and having been found guilty for this really ridiculous charge that we should never have been like given in the first place. Like it's so politically motivated, so politically motivated. It and is. I would love to see the documents and the rationale for like how they justified doing it. But the judge in our case and the prosecution have consistently blocked our lawyers from seeing any of the information that was provided to the attorney general for him agreeing to escalate the charge. I just I just don't understand how it's possible for them to do that. Yeah, so we've had an incredible and still do have an incredible legal team. Like mm -hmm. the brains that we had with us are just phenomenal. Like shout out to Matrix Chambers, especially Blina Negrali and especially Raj from Hodge Jones and Allen, who is an angel put on this earth. Oh, so true. We love we love you, Raj, so much. So much. Um, but what we saw again in court is like this is another part of the machine that is there to conserve power and maintain those structures of power. And so we are repealing our convictions at the moment. We probably will have done our community service by the time that's done. But the point is that trying to prevent this type of misuse of terror related legislation in the future. And part of our appeal is going to be the fact that we were denied our justification defense. We were denied, like basically the jury were told by the judge to completely ignore any of our motivations. So, you know, I stood up and spoke about, you know, this student that I'd worked with who'd been faced with deportation and being in Calais. And we, we all stood up and spoke about how we'd met people who'd experienced having deportation tickets and experienced coming from conflict-torn climate change affected regions and seeking asylum in this country because of those reasons. But then the jury was told to disregard all of that, that justification defense. And so like, could the jury have arguably have found us innocent when they were given that instruction? I don't know, but the, that, that's, that's going to form a significant part of our appeal. Obviously we're almost two years on, from your action. Has the practice of charter deportation flights ended? Is it still ongoing? It definitely hasn't ended. It definitely continues. And actually, on the day of our sentencing, there was the first deportation charter flight to Jamaica since the Windrush scandal broke. And this deportation charter flight to Jamaica took place before the findings of the Windrush panel had even been published. So it's like, how can they be sure that the same mistakes aren't being made? And the fact that 21 people got off that flight who had been issued tickets really says to me, nothing has changed. Like the fact that they, they could get off it. Like it's like how many other people were on that flight that should not have been. Yeah, it was being reported that there was two two girls, 11 and 13, and they were talking about how they use the term swarm, which is interesting given it's usually used to racistly refer to people who are seeking migration. They said that they saw swarming police officers come into their bedroom at five in the morning. These are two girls, 11 and 13. They were coming to try and deport their father. And this was reported because the Jamaican High Commissioner held a meeting with families affected by this deportation that Laura's talking about. And yeah, they talked about how one woman had spent over 20 grand on 
trying to keep her husband here who'd been in the, the country since primary school you know he this is his home and like 20 grand like not everyone even has that money lying around to spend on legal fees and then he'd still been deported on that flight and this is happening because of collusion between Jamaican authorities and the UK and yeah charter flights are continuing to happen yeah and I think I just David Lammy stood up in the House of Commons to challenge this deportation charter flight there was just like a specific phrase that he used that I think really links together the racial injustice and like links to colonial history that these are still a product of and he said once enslaved then colonized and now repatriated and I think that that is just such a an important phrase when we're looking at like charter flights and how like racism is still being perpetuated through the system and how it's such an inherent part of the hostile environment Mm -hmm. and you know it's just really important for us to like remember that this country was like built on the backs of black and brown people and the fact that the state refuses to even offer people like the reparation of safety when they're not safe from the place that they've left usually as a result of like actions that the British state for example took during colonial times which is the case for like LGBT plus people for example yeah that's definitely the situation in Nigeria I think it's just like, it's really important, I think, when we're talking about charter flights, really to see it in that wider context of like systemic injustice across the years. That's like a really big part of like why it's so important that when we're taking these actions, we're like linking up with other like grassroots groups that are organizing against other injustices of the system, like Black Lives Matter and um, Wretched of the Earth and groups that are really like focused on like lived experience. So one of those is Freed Voices. One of my pals, Michael, is part of Freed Voices. He's experienced detention and he he said that, yeah, they used to make money from stealing black bodies from the African continent and selling those bodies. And now they make money from ejecting black bodies from the UK. How can people help how can they resist this particular practice how can we best offer our solidarity with those caught in the home officers net is there anything going on at the moment any shout outs you'd like to give oh so many yeah so everyone can do something about this everyone Uh, think about where you're coming from what resources do you have maybe you've got a spare room maybe you could house someone that can be life-saving there's really large networks of people doing that maybe you could give some money Uh, grassroots organizations always need a bit of money always need some cash and then there's really practical stuff that can be done so shout out to like Gatwick detainee support and and SOAS detainee support and those visiting groups because like maintaining human connection with people on the outside and giving people a space to listen to that's also so important but it's also like incredibly emotionally difficult so maybe it's not the work that you'd be able to do so easily but it's it's really important maybe it's um doing active campaigning spreading the word um really keeping pressure on because it's so easy to get disillusioned right like laura talked about writing to mps and like maybe not getting an answer and all that but if people are still making noise then we're showing that there is an apathy that we haven't forgotten that we're still speaking with 
and alongside people who are suffering from the hostile environment. And then, of course, there's direct action, putting your body where your mouth is, which is really, you know, not everyone's abilities, but is really important in terms of raising the stories of people who've experienced this up. There's always something to do. Think about what you've got to offer and offer it. Yeah, I don't have anything huge to add, but like in terms of like groups that are like working specifically on this and like if you want to link up your group who's like working on other stuff, then there's also like the All African Women's Group. Mm -hmm. There's An an African Rainbow Family. African Rainbow Family, Black Women's Rape Action Group. And there's also the Crossroads Women's Centre. Even if you're not a Quaker, you're totally welcome to get involved. There's also the the Quaker houses usually have this these sanctuary initiatives. So um, meeting houses usually decide to, okay, we're going to be a sanctuary meeting. We'll try and do whatever we can to help people out who are suffering because of the, the hostile environment and hostile immigration policies. So there's usually that's going on at a Quaker meeting local to you and non-Quakers are totally welcome to get involved. It would just be nice to end on something that I think it was Primrose from the All African Women's Group said at an event recently. It was in the context of the fact that the people in the All African Women's Group who organised together to support one another, they like refused to be treated like beggars because their countries were like plundered to create this one. The phrase that they use um, is that the world belongs to all of us. We all have the right to be here and to be safe. And I think that that is just like a really like powerful message. And I think it, it's a good overview of like the motivations that led us to take the action that we did. Yeah, and also take action because it's something that's necessary for your own humanity. Like we know this is going on. Do what you can and find the peace through that of working with people and alongside people. Well, thanks to you both very much again for coming along on a Sunday to talk about this. Once again, you've been listening to Radicals in Conversation and we'll be back next month. So thanks for listening. Thanks.